My favorite thing about spices is they're great for gut health. Part of what makes them great is the polyphenol content. Many of these spices, they also have unique phytochemicals that you're actually tasting, like what you taste that is going to ultimately come into contact with your gut microbes and have beneficial effects. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us coast to coast in the U.S. and in more than 150 countries around the world. Hello to everyone listening in Peapatch Island, Delaware, Cookie Town, Oklahoma, Tosta, England. We appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 50 of season 5, number 349 overall. You know, the difference between gut health and gut hurt may already be in your kitchen. And I'm not talking about just the food that is already in your refrigerator. The key may actually be all of those little jars taking up space on your spice rack. Today, we will be talking spices and gut health with two-time New York Times bestselling author, Dr. Will Bolsowitz. Of course, he is a gastroenterologist, and in his latest book, The Fiber-Fueled Cookbook, he talks a lot about the benefits of spices, and that is what we will be diving into here today. We're going to be chatting all about it. Everything from IBS to nutrient absorption and even spices and how they can reduce gas and bloating. And because this is the exam room live, we're also opening up the doctor's mailbag and answering all kinds of questions, talking about tea and how that may aid digestion. Plus fasting, could that be the cure for heartburn? And what about spicy food? Not just spices here, but spicy food. Stick around because after the q and I'll be telling you why it is that you sweat when you eat something that's really spicy, going beyond just gut health here. Plus, what are the other benefits that can come from cranking up the heat during dinner? I'll give you one right now. You might just live longer according to some studies. And that means, of course, you have plenty of time to listen to this entire show and still get all of the spicy benefits on the other side. So let's get things going right now with the one, the only, Dr. Will Bolsowitz. Good to see you. It's been a while. It's great to see you, Chuck. It it feels like it has been a while, although we did do back-to-back episodes in late May. <laughs> so <laughs> it's it's been about a month. But a quick shout out before we move forward with the with the episode. I just want to say hello to uh, High Carb Beth and also Elizabeth Parrish. We're saying this is their first time watching live. Welcome to the broadcast. Thank you for being in the comments section with us. Oh, that's awesome. I love first timers. I love it so much when people are able to find the show live and that sense of community, it builds with every single episode. Um, So I'm stoked. Welcome, guys. I'm, I'm so glad that you're here. And this is a really important topic and one that honestly, Will, I'm surprised that we haven't gotten to yet. Uh, because you do talk about spices a lot and how could you not in a cookbook for goodness sakes, but people think about spices, they think about flavor, but they don't really think too much about how it might be affecting their health. In this case, specifically their gut health. Marshall has made the connection, but he's wondering which are the healthiest spices for the gut. 
Okay. Before I answer this question, I want to tell you my second favorite thing about spices. My second favorite thing about spices is that people who are carnivore and they claim that they eat an exclusively meat meat diet, they still use spices, which come <laughs> from plants. That is my second favorite thing about spices. Like you're busted. You're claiming you only eat meat, but you can't quit us, can you? You need those spices because they add flavor. <laughs> meat is boring without us. All right. So, but my favorite thing about spices is they're they're great for gut health. They're great. And part of what makes them great, even when you're just reaching into the spice cabinet, is the polyphenol content. Polyphenol is what gives the spices their different colors. And many of these spices, they also have unique phytochemicals that you're actually tasting. Like what you taste, that sort of provocative uh, thing, is actually something that is going to ultimately come into contact with your gut microbes and have beneficial effects. I have never, Chuck, I have never come across a study that says that the consumption of spices is unhealthy for the gut microbiome. Every single one that I've come across, it says that they're good for us. Spices are a great way to add diversity into your diet. I encourage people to be liberal with your use of spices. It's good for the tongue. It's also great for the gut microbes. Now, the question was, what is the, what are my favorite spices? Okay. Uh, it's so hard for me to, to say, but I'm going to start with turmeric. Turmeric, that like really golden spice. It actually is what gives mustard that yellow color, believe it or not. Turmeric is in every bottle of mustard that you purchase at the store. And um, it has profound anti-inflammatory properties. They've actually shown that this activates the exact same pathway that ibuprofen and other drugs like that activate but without the side effects, without the harm, without the negative effects that you get from those drugs. And so speaking, you know, uh, for myself in my own family, my father, my father's was very tall. He was six foot seven. And I would actually, um, I actually recommended to him that he add turmeric to his routine because he was having a lot of arthritis issues and believe it or not, by quite simply adding turmeric to his daily routine, he substantially improved his arthritis and he didn't have to take as much uh, naproxen and ibuprofen as he had been taking previously. One of the tricks with turmeric, by the way, is to pair it with black pepper. Black pepper increases the absorption of turmeric substantially. Um, so anytime you're using turmeric, if you're looking for those health benefits, make sure even if it's just a little sprinkle, get some black pepper in there. And the last thing, Chuck, is that I think that like a cup of coffee can be a vehicle to deliver prebiotics to your gut first thing in the morning. And you could do that by adding fiber supplements, but you can also do that by adding spices. My personal favorite spice combination in a cup of coffee is turmeric, ginger, and cinnamon. You put those three, the trinity, into the bottom of your cup, pour some coffee over the top, stir it. Don't go too hard at the spices in the beginning. Go nice and light until you get used to it. But it's amazing. So when you go to Starbucks, I mean, do you do you try to place that custom order or are you just taking your own proprietary blend of spices with you to mix in? So the problem with Starbucks, I love Starbucks. Okay, I'm there almost every single day. But the, the problem with Starbucks is that if you were to say, hey, add, could you add the turmeric for me? They would give some sort of turmeric that is mixed with sugar. 
right? Like when you order matcha green tea, it's actually impossible to get matcha green tea without added sugar at Starbucks, believe it or not, because they've already blended the two together. So, you know, look, it's up to you how you want to do this. It could be like a dollop bag, kind of similar to, you know, what you carry your, um, uh, your uh, deodorant and your, you know, toothbrush in when you're traveling, um, or could be some sort of, um, uh, 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 like waste bag or something like that. I don't know. But the point is that you could bring your spices with you to Starbucks if that's what you're looking to do. Yeah, that might be the safe play. That might be the safe play. Keep it clean. You know, before the show today, when we got this question, I'm doing a little bit of research and I was like, all right, well, I wonder what are the most common spices that people have in their kitchen here in the US? Here's the list. You tell me if any of these are not good for gut health, because based off of what it was you just said, there's no spice that it has a detrimental effect, basically. So black pepper, you've already given the thumbs up to uh, cumin. Oh, major thumbs up. Fantastic spice. Red pepper flakes. Believe it or not, yes. Uh, red pepper flakes, including red pepper in general, contains capsaicin. Capsaicin has been shown to be good for the gut. Anti-inflammatory. All right. Bay leaves. More of a herb. Than a spice, maybe? I don't I don't uh, know. I haven't seen any clear data, but I'm giving it a thumbs up because the assumption is that that's going to have polyphenols that are good for your gut microbiome. So I'm expecting thumbs up on that. Garlic powder. Oh, major thumbs up. Garlic powders. You know, look, I would rather you get fresh garlic, but I'm still giving it a thumbs up to garlic. Uh, it has allicin. And allicin has um, uh, the, the benefits that you get from garlic come from this phytochemical called allicin. Paprika. Paprika, that's a definite thumbs up also. I mean, anytime you see a vibrant color like that, vibrant red, you know that there's polyphenols in play that are good for your gut microbes. And uh, we'll round it out uh, with oregano. Oh, definite, definite thumbs up with oregano. Um, oregano has uh, anti-inflammatory and antimicrobial properties. Now, here's the thing. Oregano oil, which is basically taking oregano and then concentrating it, I'm a little bit more cautious about that because I feel like when you're concentrating it in an unnatural form, you can actually cause harm to the microbiome. But when it's consumed as a spice, totally different story, completely thumbs up on that. All right. Uh, let's take a question here from Anton. You were just talking about uh, turmeric. Uh, Anton, hi, Chuck and Dr. Will. Must I, must I eat turmeric every day? You don't have to. You, you don't, you don't have to, you're not, it's not a must. Um, you know, there's no such thing as a must in terms of your diet. You know, this is, I, let me say this, making rules that cause stress or duress. Uh, that's not what I'm about when it comes to nutrition. I'm more like, yo, this food is fun. It is delicious. And by the way, when you're eating plants, it's good for you. So let's just look for opportunities to get as many of these as possible. But I will say, if you believe in healthy habits, if you believe in healthy habits, meaning that that little thing that you do, but you do it consistently, will ultimately pay dividends, then looking at something like turmeric, cinnamon, and ginger in your coffee on a daily basis, if you love it, don't do it if you don't love it. If you love it, you have just created a healthy habit and that's how you can like create the vehicle for turmeric on a routine basis. 
Uh, let's see here. Uh, Panna, also a first-timer joining us today. So hello. Thanks for being here. Betsy, not a first-timer, but appreciates all the excellent info as always. And Michelle, the plant-based dog mom, just wants to say hi to us. So hello, one and all. Um, let's get uh, specific about IBS here and spices. Interesting question. I'm not sure that there's a connection necessarily between the two here. Deidre is wondering if any spices are particularly beneficial in terms of finding some relief if you have IBS. Well, uh, real quick, Chuck, there's a comment from Chris Wheeler in the chat box. And Chris has been eating my Trinity Overnight Oats from the Fiberfields cookbook uh, routinely. And the Trinity Overnight Oats includes cinnamon and turmeric and ginger. So actually, I actually applied that spice pattern into that specific recipe. That's your own uh, breakfast blend right there, man. That's what that is. That is a breakfast blend. The Bolsowitz oh, breakfast blend. Definitely. Uh, what, what are some of the things that are beneficial for IBS? So, well, let, let's put it this way. First of all, peppermint. I, you know, I don't know if you consider that to be a spice, um, you know, Obviously, though, like peppermint is something that could be consumed routinely and it could be done as a form of tea, as an example. And peppermint actually has powerful, powerful research to back it up in terms of irritable bowel syndrome. Multiple studies that have all said the same thing. People have improvement of their symptoms when they consume turmeric. I'm sorry, consume peppermint. Uh, the, uh, the other one that immediately comes to mind is... If you go to an Indian restaurant and it's like authentically Indian and you go to checkout, usually where the host or hostess uh, works, you'll find a bowl filled with fennel seeds. It's actually a tradition, uh, Indian culture, to chew on fennel seeds after a meal. And it turns out that the oils that are in the fennel seeds, and these I'm talking about the same fennel seeds that you may have in your spice cabinet. The oils that are in the fennel seeds actually are good for irritable bowel syndrome. They help digestion. So, and that's part of the reason why that's a part of Indian cultures that they've discovered. They, they discovered this little hack and they just kind of started doing it. And um, we could do it too if we want to. You could also do it as fennel tea if you prefer instead of chewing on the seeds. What if you mix that fennel in with something that we know probably isn't the healthiest thing for you like sausage, right? So I know that a lot of people are keen on putting fennel in sausage as somebody who's watching this right now, who just wants to, you know, poke the bear a little bit, so to speak, is going to say, yeah, well, I can get that same benefit with that piece of sausage. Oh, what do you say there? We've been, how many episodes of the exam room have we done? And this is the first time we're talking about sausage on the exam room. I know, right? I know. <laughs> I know. We were overdue. Uh, okay. You know, look, at the end of the day, um, there's no such thing as a perfect diet. That's being real. Um, I don't think people should have anxiety about their food, but I do think that we should make smart choices. And when you put a little sprinkling of fennel seeds into this sausage vehicle, you know, that is effectively putting something that is beneficial into a larger bowl of poison. And you wouldn't drink the larger bowl of poison just to have this little sprinkle of something that's beneficial or good for you. That, that wouldn't make sense. So let's stick to the fennel seeds. Let's look for alternative ways to get fennel seeds. But, you know, um, truth be told, and this is just keeping it real, you know, summertime, uh, there are times when I like to have a Beyond Meat brat. And they're good. They taste great. Do I do it every week? Heck no. 
I probably do this two or three times a summer. And that's okay. I think that's okay. I don't I don't think that you should feel guilty or bad about that. Having some space to consume foods that you enjoy that you're not necessarily eating for health. But let's make it that most of what we're eating, we're eating because we know it's it tastes good and we're not compromising in terms of our health. Right on. So I guess my question to you then would be, how does eating something that would be what I think the majority of people would say is a middle ground food in that beyond brat compared to something that you know is completely unhealthy in an actual brat in terms of gut health? What is the difference between the two there? Uh, there's a couple of differences actually between the beyond meat brat and the, and the, um, uh, real sausage. So the, the sausage is a, um, uh, preserved meat, you know, it's a preserved meat. And so the, the, the problem with the preserved meats is that the world health organization has identified them as a probable carcinogen. So that's the first thing. And the concern specifically relates to colorectal cancer. And look, we have a huge colorectal cancer problem in the United States. You and I have spent time on this show talking about colorectal cancer and the burden of disease that we have in the U.S. 150,000 people per year are being diagnosed with colorectal cancer. That's insane. And it doesn't have to be that way. And a big part of the problem is when we're eating foods that enhance or increase our risk. So that's the first thing that I would say is that you have one food that is a probable carcinogen, according to reputable people at the World Health Organization, you know, basically like a panel of scientists who are looking at the full body of evidence versus there's no evidence that the Beyond Meat is a probable carcinogen. That's the first thing. The second thing is it, Professor Christopher Gardner, uh, who is someone at Stanford University, very well-respected nutritionist, someone who I actually know and we serve on the scientific advisory board of Zoe together. Uh, he actually published a paper comparing Beyond Meat products to organic animal products. That way the argument can't be, be oh, well, you're, treat, you're, you're feeding them junk meat, right? He gave them the highest quality, most expensive meat, the type of meat that most people can't afford, organic, and compared it to Beyond Meat products. And what he saw was that the organic meat drove up TMAO levels. Now, TMAO actually connects back to the microbiome, but this is a blood marker for those that haven't heard of this. It's a blood marker identified by the Cleveland Clinic, the top cardiology program in the country, that they have isolated and they have um, connected as an independent risk factor, similar to smoking, an independent risk factor for heart disease, having a heart attack, for stroke, for diabetes, for chronic kidney disease. There's no evidence that TMAO is good for us. There's a lot of evidence that it's bad for us. And you get it from eating meat, specifically red meat. So uh, these are two of the benefits of the Beyond Meat uh, brought compared to the traditional. And that said, for those who really like to take health, uh, make things as healthy as possible, still, you know, you can do it the whole food plant-based way. There are carrot dogs out there if you really wanted to go to that kind of extreme, which by the way, have you ever had a carrot dog that's made with uh, the, the aminos and liquid smoke? Like they are, they are delicious. They are absolutely delicious. Well, this is this is the thing is you have a lot of options. So, uh, you know, I sit here. I'm not advocating for beyond for for um, uh, meat replacements. I'm not I'm not advocating for this in the sense that I'm not saying that we should make this the backbone of our diet. I'm just saying, like, there has to be some wiggle room in our diet where we eat things that aren't necessarily the healthiest diet on the, 
the healthiest food in the entire planet. That's just being human. But um, there are there are replacements that exist that we categorically agree don't come with those compromises. And so like a carrot dog would be an example of one. Um, another one would be a portobello burger. You could do portobello steaks. I actually have that recipe in the Fiber Fields cookbook. Um, black bean burgers, you know, veggie burgers in general. So there, there's a lot of great choices that are available. It's just sort of a question of like, you know, what sort of experience are you looking for on your grilling day? There you go. I like it. Um, let's circle back to turmeric. A lot of people still questioning this uh, in the old chat here, uh, yep. wondering what the best form is. Can you get the same benefit from the powder, the ground turmeric that most of us have as you could from fresh turmeric? Uh, yeah, the, the, the evidence would suggest that you can get those benefits from the powder turmeric. And in fact, the vast majority of studies have not included the fresh turmeric. The, the, the vast majority of studies have actually been with the use of supplementation of turmeric. Um, so, but like supplementation is frankly no different than, you know, it's, is it a uh, capsule that contains the turmeric spice or are you using the turmeric spice in your food? Ultimately, it's getting to the same place and doing the same thing. Yeah. And that was the next question uh, from a gentleman in the chat who was wondering if the supplements were just as good as the spice. It sounds like they can almost be one in the same. Yeah. If, if you, it, um, if you prefer to supplement with turmeric instead for the person who said, you know, I don't really like the flavor of it. I don't want to consume it on a daily basis. If you choose to take the turmeric supplement that I think that's perfectly fine. That's your choice. Um, but there are ways that I think are delicious to include turmeric in your life. All right. Let's take an interesting question here from Barb, who is uh, courageous enough to admit that she's suffering from a little bit of gas and bloating and wondering whether there are any spices she can incorporate in her diet to help out there. Uh, the fennel, actually. So the fennel is a great choice when it comes to gas gas and bloating. Going back to that one um, from before. And and peppermint, the peppermint uh, approach is not specific to gas, but it helps in terms of irritable bowel syndrome. And irritable bowel syndrome often comes with a package that includes gas. So the, I would just go back to those two. You know, those that's where the body of evidence really is the most strong. Uh, we were talking about Starbucks, talking about coffee, but what about tea? Let's switch gears away from spices just momentarily. Talk tea. Mary is wondering whether drinking tea can improve digestion. Yeah. Uh, well, so first of all, I am of the belief that a warm beverage of any variety consumed after a meal does have a soothing effect. I, I, I am convinced that this is part of the reason why bone broth is so popular I, I do not question that when people consume bone broth, they feel a sense of at ease in terms of their gut. I think this is just a common thing among warm beverages um, that we consume. And like literally, I'm, I'm convinced you could warm up a glass of water and you still feel like a sense of ease with your gut when you consume this after a meal. So um, I do believe that tea can be something that helps in terms of digestion. In terms of tea and the microbiome, the evidence is clear. Tea is beneficial for the gut microbiome. And part of what's special about tea are the polyphenols, which we've been talking about during the show. You know, when we're talking about spices, that really is what we're focusing on. The polyphenols are beneficial for the gut bugs. And the tea that seems to have the most in the form of these polyphenols is matcha green tea. Matcha green tea, um, you actually, because of the way that it's produced, it's a powder. And you stir the powder and you don't typically steep it. 
you know, you don't have a bag that you pull out. You typically just stir the powder into water and you drink, consume the whole thing. Well, that, that powder is actually the tea leaves. You're actually consuming the tea leaf. And um, this is part of what enhances the access to this uh, particular phytochemical called EGCG that has these benefits uh, for, for our health, including for our gut health. So I'm a big fan of tea. Have you figured out a way to get the water to absorb all of the matcha? I always wind up with kind of this matcha mud at the bottom of my mug every time that I, I try to mix it in there together. I know that you have some at your house. We, we enjoyed a cup when we were building out your studio. I don't know. Is there a trick to that that I'm missing? Well, if you, okay, I don't, I don't prepare the traditional matcha in my home on a daily basis. When I do my matcha, let me just be upfront and frank. I typically pour the matcha into a, a glass, into a mug, and then I add hot, hot water and I stir. That's it. All That's right. It. Yeah, man. And, um, and it does settle out. So this is where keeping the spoon and giving it a stir before you take a sip is just kind of the hack that you use. But Chuck, if you were to look at the traditional preparation of matcha, uh, by the way, if anyone's ever been to Asheville, North Carolina, or if you're going to Asheville, fantastic town for being plant-based. My wife and I, this is where we like to vacation because we live in Charleston. We don't have great access to plant-based food here. When we go to Asheville, we feel like we're in heaven. And um, there's a place called Dobra Tea. And they serve tea in the authentic way. And they have this like 400-page book filled. It's all about tea. It's hilarious. So <laughs> traditional matcha tea is served in a Japanese, um, I forget the proper word for it. Someone in the chat box may have it, but it's basically like a ceramic. Okay. And you, you put the tea at the bottom, uh, add a little bit of water. It's more like just a couple of ounces. It's not what you would do in a big mug. It's more like probably three ounces and they have this special brush and they will vigorously apply the brush and whip up the matcha until it becomes foamy. And then you drink it almost like an espresso. Ooh. And it's fantastic. Ooh, that, that does sound quite tasty. We have, um, uh, let's see, uh, Sherry J right now is saying matcha with a dash of lemon in there. That seems like that would be a heck of a combination as well. Oh, I might have to try that. It's a great combination. I actually completely agree. I appreciate you, Sherry, for bringing that up because, uh, and you also enhance the polyphenol content when you do it. So it's a fascinating thing. Uh, let's see, Erica Evans, is this live? Yes, sure is. Um, okay, question. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> question from Michael. Uh, it says that uh, he's been eating a whole food plant-based diet, but still not able to eat unlimited amounts of beans every day. How can he go ahead and try to incorporate more beans into his diet? Says sometimes he eats white rice. Says sometimes he eats white rice instead of brown, and that seems to help. So if somebody's struggling. Dr. B, to get more beans into their diet, where would you suggest they start? Chuck, beans, beans, they're good for the heart. But the more you eat, the more you pass gas. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we want more beans. They're, beans are the longevity food. If you bring Dan Butner from the Blue Zones on here, He's going to talk for an hour about beans and it's hard to get him to stop talking about beans. It's a love affair. All right. Cause they're so good for us and they reduce our risk of heart disease and cancer among many other things. We want those beans. Uh, there are some tricks that you can apply. Naturally my start low and go slow approach is a big part of the strategy that you use. What that means is getting your body adjusted 
to consuming beans. So don't go super hard at one meal with a ton of beans and then not eat beans for two weeks and talk about how that one meal made you feel bad. But instead, consuming beans with regularity in very small quantities is one of the ways that you can build up your tolerance. Another way is through soaking. When you soak your beans, all right, so if you have, a, if you have um, dried beans, put them in a bath of water overnight, all right? Wake up the next day, pour out the water, rinse them, and then pour out the water again, okay, before you cook them. Um, or if it's canned beans, quite simply rinse them like crazy. The reason that this works is that you are actually drawing off one of the things that is responsible for a lot of the gas production. It's what we call water-soluble. And so water-soluble means that it will get into the water. So when you add water to it, you are pulling this out. And then you're going to pour it out into the sink. And so you are eliminating this thing that can be responsible for some of the gas production. You can also cook your beans with kombu. That's one of the tricks that people do. And if you don't... I, I, this is a recent thing for me, Chuck. Uh, I have become a big Instant Pot fan. Do you oh, have an yeah. Instant Pot? Oh, yeah. big fan. Big, big, Good. big fan. Absolutely. All right. I, I never used one until very recently. Now I get it. Now I understand why people are freaking <laughs> out about this. You take, like, if you're doing whole grains, this is such a way to make whole grains so accessible. Because you quite simply take, like, you scoop a cup of whole grains, drop it in there, add, like, a cup and a half of water, little sprinkle of salt if you want it, press the button and come back in 20 minutes and you got the most fluffy, delicious whole grains ever, right? Yeah, man. The same is true for legumes. When you when you cook with the Instant Pot with legumes, um, it it's not just reducing the lectin content. It also is reducing the histamine content, which can be responsible for some bloating. And so there are some benefits to doing it like this. Yeah, I got, I really want to do that. Uh, I want to cook garbanzo beans in the Instant Pot and do uh, ultra fresh hummus and see how that tastes. My guess is it will be the most extraordinary thing ever to hit this palate. And I'm excited about what may happen this weekend. Um, I'm what pumped. if you sprouted those garbanzos, baby? What if you sprouted those? Now that is- I mean, that's next level. I yes. mean, that might, that, that, that might just be too much. I don't know that I could handle that personally. That just might be too much for this guy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, talking about whole grains here. Uh, great transition to a question from Danushka, wondering whether they can cause bloating. Uh, she specifically is wondering about quinoa, says every time she eats quinoa salad, her stomach starts to hurt and she starts to feel gassy like she needs to use the restroom. And sometimes, not to get too TMI here, but she may see a little bit of undigested quinoa on the way out, if you know what I mean. Sure. She loves quinoa, though. What can she do? Well, so there's a couple of things. First of all, whole grains and legumes, the story is actually very similar. There's a reason why these foods, number one, cause a lot of gas and bloating. Number two, many people will claim that they're bad for digestion. That's actually not true. You're just feeling it. And that's because they're high in fiber and resistant starches and polyphenols. That is three types of prebiotics. And that is also a lot of work for your microbiome. That's why you're struggling. But at the same time, that also makes them the ultimate gut health foods. I'm not kidding when I say that. Like, if I only get to choose one or two, here's where I'm going. Those are my one or two. Um, now, how can we approach this with whole grains? So a couple of things. First, the, the low and slow method is in play once again. 
you got to make sure because we have a many of us have a tendency to do this. We get excited. Oh, I love quinoa. So then you serve up this massive bowl. But the quantity is part of the story. The larger the quantity of quinoa that you have in the serving, the more you are asking your gut microbes to step up and do work. So reducing the quantity of the quinoa and perhaps consuming it in smaller quantities on a more regular basis is one of the strategies. Another strategy is by cooking with the with the instant instant pot, the the pressure cooker. Um, so again, you, you get delicious food, so fluffy, so great, and simultaneously it becomes more digestible because you're cooking it that way. And the last thing would be sprouting it, so you can actually sprout your quinoa, and this is one of the ways to make it more accessible. So soaking it. There you go. So you're 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 like the sprout king. I, I could see like the follow up to fiber fueled being like sprout fueled or something like that i i don't know um, <laughs> um i am the sprout prince i'm the sprout prince <laughs> there the it sprout is. king is doug evans doug evans is the sprout king i am the sprout prince the I'm, sprout prince. I'm, in the I'm in the okay there, he's <laughs> okay uh you talk a lot about variety in your diet uh and the number of different plant foods a person should eat every week have a question from norma wondering whether when she's counting the number of different plant foods she's eating every week, would that include the foods that she's putting into her juicer? Oh, wow. Uh, it's a good question, obviously, hence my response. And, you know, here, here's the thing that I would say. If, if you're asking me, do you include these when you put them into a smoothie? That's a clear, wholehearted yes, because you're not tossing the fiber. I, I mean, I have to say, like, if you're putting them into your juicer, I'm a bit apprehensive to include it on the list. That being said, at the end of the day, I just want you to get as many varieties of plants in whatever way you can. My preference would be that you do it in a smoothie instead of the juicer. That way you're not giving up the fiber. That would be my preference. But if the choice is juicer versus not doing them at all, I'll still take the juicer when it comes to these types of foods. And so if that's the case and you really want to include it, I'm not mad at you. At the end of the day, it's just about fun. That's the other thing to keep in mind. Like, It's not about the rules. If the rules are causing you stress, then you're not doing it the way that I want you to. I just want you to have fun and eat more varieties of plants, period. End of story. That's it, man. Have fun with it. And this is a fun diet, man. It's all about creativity and finding innovative ways to get proper nutrition in the kitchen that's delicious and exploring and expanding the palate. And it's, it is, dude, it is absolutely fun. If somebody asked me what's the best way to sum up a plant-based diet, fun might be the one word that I use. It should be. Um, for many people who don't cook this way, if they're not used to cooking this way, they th that to them is like, <laughs> come on, you're eating cardboard. It's like, <laughs> no, actually I'm not check out these delicious recipes, right? But I kind of feel like it's like we should all channel our inner our inner um, Emerald Lagasse and just like be in the kitchen like, bam, boom, bam with the spices. You know what I mean? That's part of the fun. No doubt about it. And, and that's why like I find it like really fun to try things like carrot dogs, right? So like um, guy in the chat was saying like carrot dogs, ooh. But then we had another guy in the chat. He's like, I was skeptical too until I tried them and they're delicious. Uh, what's up, Video 1000 Nights? Um, but, you know, I think back to when I was still overweight, right? And I must have been like three, three and a half bills at this point. And a buddy of mine, a colleague at the time, takes me to this 24-hour cheesesteak diner. And the line in the middle of the night for this place was around the block. 
And he's like, dude, look at this. These are all of our people, right? And he's like, people would not be here if the food did not taste good. And even though I'm eating a completely different diet these days, that mentality still stays with me. I am not, no matter how healthy it is, going to eat anything if it doesn't taste good. So if this former 420-pound guy is telling you that a carrot dog tastes good, you can take it to the bank, Dr. B, that that carrot dog tastes good. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm not doubting you, man. <laughs> I, 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 was never, I was never pushing back or doubting you. Uh, I wholeheartedly agree. But no, I think that your point is the right point, which is that people need to understand we're not asking you to compromise your taste or your flavor. That's not the issue. We're saying to you, you can have your taste and flavor without compromising your health. This is an option and you can take it if you want it. No question about it. Uh, spicy food is an option for all of us as well. Some people love it. Some people, eh, not so much, but the option is always there. Aaliyah, though, we talked a little bit about this earlier when we were talking about red pepper flakes, but she's wondering if you can elaborate a little bit more on the connection between spicy food and gut health. Yes, the capsaicin. Uh, capsaicin is a part of spicy peppers, and they've they've actually found that capsaicin um, has beneficial effects in terms of uh, not only our gut health, but there appear to be metabolic benefits to the consumption of capsaicin. By the way, capsaicin you can also find in your in your drugstore uh, as a cream, and it, it's a, actually applied like for example to the joints of people that have arthritis. And so it's a quite fascinating thing. Like, think about this. What I'm telling you, I'm not, I'm not advocating for drugs. What I'm telling you is that the pharmaceutical industry is looking at what happens in the plant world. And they're basically like pulling out the stuff that works and then turning it into something that they can commercialize. And so, but it naturally exists and occurs in real food. And um, this capsaicin, again, is beneficial for the gut microbiome and your metabolism. All right. You think spicy food, you think heartburn. A lot of people reach for those Tums, but Serenity is wondering whether fasting could be a good remedy for heartburn. For some people, uh, I have not seen a great study to prove, you know, here's what I would say. Uh, if we create a fasting protocol, Chuck, it's almost a requirement that it pushes forward your dinner time, right? Because like, if you're eating at midnight and then you're fasting, that's just to, to me kind of a bizarre fasting program. Like any real fasting program basically means you have your dinner and then no, no food, no alcohol, no sweet treats in the evening. And if you, if you do actually just that, you can actually improve heartburn or acid reflux. Cause one of the problems is you lay down flat at night and you sleep, and whether you feel it or not, because you may actually feel it the next day during the day, but whether you feel it or not, laying flat, gravity used to be your friend, and now it's kind of turned into the enemy a little bit because you're laying flat. It's very easy for things to reflux up into the esophagus and then to stay there overnight. And this is why we want an empty stomach when we go to bed. So ideally four hours, four hours of blank time with no alcohol, no sweets, no, no food prior to going to bed. Uh, let's see here. Tommy, how can low carb diets affect the microbiome? I'm sure you can talk quite a bit about this one. 
Well, I can talk about this one, but unfortunately, the reality is it's more speculative than actual hard science, at least where we stand today, believe it or not, Chuck, because we don't have as much research on this topic as we'd like. I mean, the reality is that people have run with the low carb idea. They've taken the baton and they've started running with it. And it's like, hold on. Where are your studies? Like, where where is the evidence to back this up? And so the reality with low carb, first of all, can we create a low carb diet that like I would sit there and say, yeah, that looks pretty healthy. Uh, it's possible. I still would take issue with the fact that you have to eliminate fruit in order to do a low carb diet. And that to me is elimination of a healthful food category. And that's not good for your gut microbiome. So I, it's hard for me to really stand behind a low carb diet, particularly when it's being used long term. It feels like more of a gimmick. It feels like more of a fad. And the other problem is that this scenario, this hypothetical scenario that I just painted the picture of, this is like with the involvement of a trained professional, like a registered dietitian. That's not the way that people are doing this, Chuck. This is not the way that people are doing this. The way that people are doing a low-carb diet in the United States is they're eating crap. They're eating a ton more meat. And they're eating low-carb, ultra-processed foods that they find at the supermarket. That, to me, is like invariably an unhealthy diet for the gut microbiome. There's just no question about that. Man, yep. We could go down that road forever and a day, but uh, we got about five minutes left. You feel like taking some questions uh, kind of rapid fire? Rapid fire. All right, let's do it. Uh, Charles, wondering which spices improve nutrient absorption? Well, I mentioned earlier that uh, the black pepper can increase the absorption of the turmeric. So that's a quick example. That's the first that comes to mind. Okay. Uh, let's see. World Mind at 1240. What top three plant foods can I eat to reduce bloating? Uh, ginger. Sprouts. Sprouting reduces the, the bloating. And um, let me think. You know, I, honestly, I think I would go back to what we mentioned earlier. I would go back to the peppermint and the fennel because those things are so, again, like stick to what the science says. And that's where the science is. That's it, man. Put a little pinch of that fennel between the old cheek and gum. It'll do you good. Uh, Jermaine, 1242. What about garlic? Is that good to eat every single day? Uh, if you if you could, absolutely. There's no question. Garlic is so good for us. Yeah, man. Do you put that in your in your coffee as well? Do you, you no, that would, little, <laughs> that would be a little bit weird. But um, what you can do with garlic is you can get a, a clove of garlic. By the way, I don't recommend this if you have heartburn or acid reflux, but uh, you can get a clove of garlic and you can chop it up into little small pieces. I call them pills because you're going to swallow them. And you, you swallow, swallow them whole? Yeah. So you do my chop then stop technique. So chop then stop, that basically means that you chop the garlic and you walk away for 10 minutes and then you come back to do whatever you're going to do with the garlic. And in this particular case, you could actually swallow the garlic. You just rinse it down with some water and like you could take a garlic supplement, right? Or you can chop then stop on a garlic clove and actually just swallow garlic and take that as your supplement. And that's one of the ways you can do it, believe it or not. And we, my family, I don't personally do this every single day. But like when I start to get the little tickle in the throat and you know that something's starting, I do this. Wow. So that's like your emergency that you could buy in the store. You just reach for that clove of garlic. Yeah, I just do garlic. I don't do emergency. I do the garlic. That's awesome. 
Okay, I'm going to give that one a try. Uh, don't worry, be happy. 1242, I drink chamomile teal chamomile tea every day is this good for gut health we were talking about all kinds of tea is chamomile on that list rapid fire yes <laughs> okay is. fair yeah. enough uh follow up we were talking uh, more about tea uh wondering is there ever a scenario in which drinking a warm beverage could make bloating worse hmm yeah, that's a showstopper right there. Uh, well, it depends on what's in the... It, it's a curveball. Uh, it, it depends on what's in the tea or in the beverage. There are things that you could put into the beverage, but the fact that it's warm, from my perspective, I don't see that as making... It's not the temperature that's the issue. It's potentially what's in the beverage. Uh, is it better to put the spices on or beef uh, on during cooking or after the cooking process or before? Does it matter? Does timing matter when it comes to spice? Uh, it's a great question. I am sure there's a study that answers this. Here's what I will say that I know. When you cook, it does change food. Not necessarily for the worse. Think about tomatoes. Think about how delicious a roasted tomato is relative to what it started as when it was raw. And the lycopene content in the tomato is increased. So from my perspective, I don't necessarily see it as bad to cook with them. I don't know which is more advantageous, and it probably is on a spice-by-spice -spice basis. All right. Uh, switching real quick away from spice over to fat. Rachel says that she's reading Fiber Fueled right now. She's loving it. How many grams of fat should she be eating every day on a whole food plant-based diet? What would you recommend so that she can continue to lose weight and have that optimal gut health? I don't count grams of fat. I don't keep track of macros. That's never been my personal style. I've never, so it's, it's impossible for me to go and advocate for that because that's not something that I've ever done. I don't even count grams of fiber, even though I've written two books about fiber. I count plants. I focus on plants. I eat varieties of plants. I would recommend actually the same. And if you're trying to lose weight, the key with the fat is, from my perspective, don't consume oil because oil is when you're actually extracting and removing the fiber and you're just eating it with such caloric density. It's it, That to me is problematic for a person who's trying to lose weight. But on the flip side, in moderation, I don't have a problem with nuts and with uh, avocados because they still contain the fiber. And if you eat them in moderation, like without being, you know, sort of ridiculous about them, then you actually, your satiety hormones, your mechanisms will kick in and you will stop eating. And that's the key. Uh, all right. Two more. Uh, let's go back to garlic. Stephen Page at 1249. What about black garlic versus regular white garlic? Is there a difference between the two in terms of benefits for your gut? I saw this question from Stephen Page, and when you said Stephen Page, I almost stopped you because you didn't even have to ask the question. I knew. <laughs> uh, black garlic is fermented garlic. Black garlic, to me, actually, if you give me a choice between the two, I'll take the black garlic. They're both great. They're both. What's great. the What's the flavor profile like on that? I don't think I have ever had black garlic. Yeah, I, it's. You know what? Maybe Stephen can pop into the chat and give us a breakdown on the flavor profile because I don't consume it with great regularity myself, to be honest with you. But they're, I think they're both great. All right. And the final question is you talk about eating as many plants as you can. Have you kept count? What is your personal record for most variety of plants within a single week? Oh, it's got to be. Uh, it's got to be like in the 60s. 
Uh, it's got to be <laughs> maybe more, maybe more. So up there, man. Yeah. Um, I had a head to head competition just for fun a few years ago against Marcia from the plant chicks. And it, we kind of got, we both kind of got ridiculous in <laughs> just trying to eat as many plants as possible. And Dude. so I'm pretty sure that week it was probably in the nineties. Oh my God. I would love to know what your grocery bill was that week. That is, that is insanity, but fun insanity as we were talking about with this diet. Yeah. And uh, if you have not yet picked up your copy of the Fiber Fueled Cookbook, go ahead and do that as well. There's a link to that right now in the show description and in the episode notes. And I know you're always such a busy guy, man. What else do you have going on? Any programs coming up that people should be aware of? Yeah, actually, it's great timing. I, I'm starting the, the Plant Fed Gut Masterclass, which is my Cadillac program. It's a seven-week gut health program. It's, it's about um, uh, a complete educational foundation. So this is not like a quick fix thing. This is like you're ready to take seven weeks and fully immerse yourself. Video lessons, audio lessons, live Q&As every single week to cover the material with me. Uh, live Q&As with other people, guest lecturers, active Facebook group. When I started the program in September of 2020, Chuck, um, I believe we had like eight recipes. We're now up to 27 recipes. It's almost like getting an additional cookbook. We have an, an entire book that is over 100 pages long that's a part of the program. So the point is, like, I go out of my way to ensure that every person who does this program, they um, feel that they got tremendous value, like the value of the course being four or five, six times more than what you pay. And this is the reason why what I've consistently achieved is more than 95% of people who take my course, they would recommend it to their friends. And that's something that I'm very proud of. That's that's the hard work and play. You know that somebody's getting something out of it if they're willing to put their name on the line for it, you know, and back it up and say that's a quality product. And there's no doubt that that is indeed what it is you are delivering. So go ahead, sign up for that course today. And uh, Dr. B, thank you so much for being here uh, on short notice, man. To be perfectly honest with everybody, I uh, greatly do appreciate it. Can't wait to talk to you again in a couple of weeks. Can't wait to talk to you again. Maybe we'll talk about sausages some more, Chuck. Thank you. <laughs> maybe, maybe. There's a link to sign up for Dr. B's Masterclass right now in the episode notes. And he's scheduled to be back here live with us on Wednesday, July 13th at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. That will be over on the Physicians Committee's YouTube channel. And there's a link to subscribe to that right now in the episode notes. When you subscribe, be sure to enable notifications so you will know whenever we have a new episode of The Exam Room coming out. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcast or Spotify, wherever it is that you get your shows. And when you do that, do us a favor as well and leave a five-star rating and a nice review. And this one in particular is huge because every new subscription and five-star rating helps to get this information to people looking to improve their health. We want to climb as high as possible in the podcast rankings because the closer we are to the top, the easier it becomes for somebody searching for themselves, trying to find that answer to take their health to that next level, stop their suffering, that can come with this podcast. So if you subscribe and leave that five-star rating, you truly can help that person change their health fortunes and help to raise their health IQ. So we talked a lot about spicy foods today on the show. 
And you heard Dr. B mention the benefits of capsaicin for your health. Well, here's something else that you may not have known about spicy foods. Have you ever eaten anything that is so hot that it gives you the sweats? It's like you literally begin to sweat while your mouth is on fire. Turns out there's a pretty good reason for this. A timely release actually crossed my desk that was sent from the University Hospital's Clinical Nutrition Department in Cleveland. And a dietitian there explained this phenomenon. They said, well, look, capsaicin does not actually burn you, but instead it tricks your brain into thinking that a temperature change has actually occurred and that results in the sensation of heat and pain. And the release goes on to say, quote, not surprisingly, your body's reaction to capsaicin is to cool itself down. Hence, the sweating that often accompanies eating very spicy food. Similarly, capillaries dilate so that heat can be directed away from the body and through the skin as seen by the flushed faces and hands of those who drench their tacos in hot sauce. It continues to say that in its attempt to cool itself down, your body's temperature will rise. So not all of the heat that you will experience when eating spicy food is imaginary. Your body will also attempt to rid itself of capsaicin by increasing the production of mucus, tears, and saliva, resulting in the runny nose, watery eyes, and even drooling that still makes that Thai green curry so worth it for so many of us. And the mouth on fire sensation typically fades, they say, after about 20 minutes as the capsaicin molecules neutralize and stop binding to your pain receptors. That's pretty interesting stuff. That's Spice 201 right there. Next level spice. I love spicy food though. What about you? I did it when I was a little kid, but I kind of grew to absolutely adore it. And it's pretty popular. A poll conducted in 2021 surveyed 100 people in all 50 states. Pretty big poll. Talk to all of them about their fondness for all things heat. And it turns out that the state where people can really handle having their mouth set on fire, the top state for that is New Mexico. Residents there say their tolerance is the highest of anywhere in the U.S. But New Mexico, though, it only ranked third for having the actual spiciest cuisine. That honor belongs to the fine state of Louisiana, with neighboring Texas coming in second. And about half of everyone who was surveyed said they are more likely to test the spicy waters when they are with someone else. Now, I don't know why that is, why people get more brave when they're with a friend or a family member. Maybe it's just the escalation of a dare. Maybe they just want someone there to help in case they really can't take the heat. Like maybe they took that ghost pepper challenge or something like that. <laughs> Who knows? But back to the dietitian at the university hospital. They also back up what Dr. Bolsowitz was talking about as far as the benefits of adding heat to your menu. So in addition to gut and stomach health, people who eat spicy foods six or seven times a week actually tend to live longer than those who only eat spicy food occasionally or not at all. They also tend to have less bad or LDL cholesterol. 
Now that's not to say that's a green light to go crazy with chicken wings or anything like that. No, no. If you're going with the heat and you want a wing, it should always be a cauliflower wing. So throw a little heat on those bad boys and they are absolutely delicious by the way. You can do them no oil, fat free, just put those in the air fryer and go to town. You don't even need to wait for the Super Bowl to crush those things. They are so good. And spicy food also turns out that it is good for weight loss. It's been shown to reduce pain in a lot of cases as well. And capsaicin, keep hearing that word today, capsaicin, it's even used in some medicines and pain relief creams and patches. It's also great for the skin because it reduces inflammation and redness and scaling from atopic dermatitis and psoriasis, according to this dietitian. And the dietitian also says that studies have shown that spicy food can slow the growth of tumors in several forms of cancer. Not bad. Now, if we only knew why some people are super sensitive to spicy food, that would be amazing. My wife is one of those people. It's like she has one flake of black pepper and it's as if she's done a shot of Tabasco sauce. I'm not even kidding. It's wild. And my mom, she is the same way. So maybe figuring out that mystery could be a topic for another show. But as we wrap up today, I would like to send our best wishes to the family of Skip Trimble, who was a longtime Physicians Committee supporter and a powerhouse for animal protection in Texas. Skip unfortunately passed away recently. And on behalf of everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I would like to extend all of the best to his wife, Mary, and his entire family. And for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to the Prince of Sprouts, Dr. Will Bolsowitz, for joining us. And for everyone at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based. <laughs>